Welcome to Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. On the show, our team of industry experts interviews contingency fee attorneys. You will discover everything from how they got started to the secrets of their success and what's working in today's marketplace. And now, here's the Case Closed Podcast. Hello, this is Sean Koontz. I'm Certified Financial Fiduciary with uh, Podcast Case Closed. Today, we are here with Tyler Whittem. He is an attorney, and Tyler, I will let you introduce yourself. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, you know, things you do, um, and how you got started. So I'm Tyler Whittem. I'm a personal injury attorney here in Kansas City. Uh, I practice in Missouri and in Kansas. Um, I'm originally from uh, the Northland, which is you know right north of the river, but I've since moved out to Johnson County after law school and everything. I went to my undergraduate at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Then I came home for law school and went to UMKC. I've been doing this about six years, a um, little longer, and I've uh, started my own law firm and, you know, have been kind of just taking things my own way ever since and working on building up my practice and, you know, focusing not just on making sure, you know, that I do the best I can in terms of the law side of things, but also coming to realize that the business side of things of being a law practice can be almost as important. Right, right, awesome. So, Tyler, what uh, what made you choose uh, Mizzou and UMKC? What was your process on that? Them decisions. So, my in going to Mizzou, I wanted somewhere that was you know far enough away that you know I I wouldn't be necessarily still you know living with my parents, still living you know under the the watchful eye. I wanted to you know, a chance to get out and kind of be my own person and, uh, you know, develop into the guy that, you know, I've become today. And I think Mizzou was a great opportunity to do that because it's far enough away, you know, that you can't just, you know, run home every time you want dinner or something, but it's close enough that if something is going on or there's a family event you want to make it to, you can get back. And then as far as UMKC, um, my thought process, and I was told this by several people is, Absent you getting into like Harvard or Yale or Duke or something like that, practice where you want to practice law, it makes sense to go to law school there. So I considered Columbia, but at the end of the day, I'd heard most people in Columbia end up either driving to Kansas City or St. Louis to, you know, work for, work at the firms over the summer where they actually end up practicing. So for me, I knew I wanted to practice in Kansas City. And so I went to UMKC and they have a good law program here that is especially, I think, adept at helping you be able to connect with the lawyers within the city to make sure you can find that first job out of school. Yeah, that seems like a pretty common thing for Mizzou that it's right in the middle of Kansas City and St. Louis. You kind of get people from both cities there. Uh, Interesting. So are you a sports fan? I am. Yeah. Pretty big. I, you know, I don't get to sit around and watch as much as I used to. Like when I was at Mizzou, you know, you'd, you'd sit there and Saturday was college football and you'd watch college football all day. And then Sunday you'd watch pro football all day, but I keep up on, you know, sports, I think pretty well. I know I, at one point, uh, 
In a past life, I wrote at uh, Bleacher Report for a little bit, uh, covering the Chief Royals. Um, So if you Google my name, you'll find a bunch of really bad sports articles. (laughs) That's awesome. So being like a Mizzou fan, which I grew up there too, uh, it's kind of hard when you have to work or live on the Kansas side because you got the rivalry going there. But I've just kind of embraced loving both teams after hating one. Yeah, yeah. In college, it was very much, you know, KU absolutely gives you the ick. And, uh, you know, you, you every time someone says something good about them, you feel compelled to say something bad. But, uh, you know, I, I, I've gotten more uh, indifferent as, with my as opposed to hating them. You know, if they play the Tigers, I'm still going to root against them and say right. mean things. But, you know, I don't get the same rush from, you know, another school beating KU that I would have, you know, back when I was 20 or something. So, and that's good because, I mean, when you're over here, I, I think you have a lot of people that, you know, they like KU. And, I mean, as an adult, it's it's no longer ac- acceptable just to say, you know, overtly provocative things about stuff people like so right (laughs) yeah my dad always used to say you should always support the teams where you come from and always support the teams where you live (laughs) right right so so you being in the practice six years now um you probably had a little bit of a struggle starting what you know in, in your process of starting your own law firm what's that look like what was some of your toughest things that you had to overcome starting that and work through so the biggest i guess barrier to me with entering the practice of law was and having my own firm was having an actual client base um a lot of firms are set up now to where if you're working for them you know the brand is the law firm not the lawyer and i think that's intentional and i think for the law firm that makes a lot of sense and so it you know, it's real easy to sit there and, you know, if people just keep putting fish on your plate, you cook up the fish and, you know, you eat it, so to speak, but you never learn how to catch fish that way. And so I think the hardest part is cultivating your own client base, having people who come to you because of you and not because of, you know, yourself working under a bigger banner. And obviously when you're going out on your own, you're no longer getting a paycheck. You're no longer getting, you know, clients just, you know, served up on a plate for you. And so you have to figure out your own way to get those people. And so I think the biggest thing that kept me from, you know, uh, opening my own practice probably sooner than I did was that, you know, I had to make sure that I had that client base so that I'd have a soft landing. And I think there's people who go out and, you know, they do it on their own. And a lot of them, you know, take, the field of dreams approach, so to speak, you know, if, if you build it, they will come. Um, but uh, I'm a little more risk averse than that. And it's not that those that doesn't work out for them, but I also know it doesn't work out for a lot of them. And so I wanted a situation where when I made the leap out onto my own, that I would know that, hey, I have a client base. I have people I, whose cases are coming to me for me. And I'm going to be able to continue to cultivate my own business to make sure that, you know, this isn't me going out on my own and then immediately uh, running out of people within, you know, three months and saying, well, where did everyone else go? So that was the biggest, I think, barrier is just building your own brand while you're working under someone else that's, you know, a bigger brand. So what's that look like for you? Like, do you... um do a lot of advertising or use technology or, um, you know, chambers or 
you know, what's your biggest success in marketing to, you know, find clients to build a system? So, so my biggest success is I think actually like in person, like networking and relationship building, because at the end of the day, if, you know, in our area, probably the bigger firms are De Pasquale Moore, Brown and Crouppen, Edelman and Thompson, and they are advertising and they're, they're flooding the airwaves. And if I try to compete with those guys, I'm either going to be a, have so few commercials and such little advertising that it won't have much of an effect, or I'm going to be in a situation where if I could find a way to spend as much as them, that, you know, fine, but then I'm out too much in advertising to make it work, you know, on the revenue side of things. And so I think from my perspective, you got to zig where other people zag. And so that's been building those relationships. And I think it's letting other firms know that, you know, you're an attorney that's willing to file cases that, you know, may not be exactly perfect. It's um, when someone gives you a call, making sure that you call within you know, a few minutes of getting it. And, you know, you're not waiting a week before you call a hot new lead, because that's the other thing. If someone sends you a case and you wait a week, they've seen at least 10 other commercials for, you know, another firm. They've seen, if they've driven on the road at all, they've seen, you know, five other billboards. And so you're basically at that point, leaving it entirely to chance if that person isn't snatched up before they get to you or that they get to you. So I guess my big thing is building those relationships with uh, other attorneys, other providers, and frankly, even trying to like stay in touch to some extent with former clients, because a lot of that is going to lead people that are going to, you know, it generates leads, but then those leads that you generate, one, aren't completely blind. And two, it's, you know, a solid lead versus, you know, a lead that's going out to you and 55 other attorneys. And so right. you're not you're not chasing scraps of other people. You can actually, you know, get the person that you want to get because they were sent to you and not you and again, 55 other attorneys. Right. So more referral work and building relationships with the people that you've already done business with. Right. So what do you think the new, like a new attorney starting out kind of the way you did, what do you think the biggest failures are of those attorneys? Um, I think a lot of it is people have a tendency to try to say, okay, I'm going to go to this event and I'm going to meet somebody or, you know, I, I made this, got this introduction to a doctor. Um, I'm going to go out to lunch with them. And then they go out to lunch with them. And then they don't talk to them again for a year. And, you know, they'll try to focus on having a hundred lunches with a hundred different people instead of actually building those relationships up. I mean, you've heard of the 80-20 rule and and I think it applies here. I think 80% of probably your business is going to come from probably 20% of your referral sources. You know, it, it works out roughly that way for everything. So, I mean, if you've gone out with a hundred people, that's great. But odds are, you know, when those people have something come in, unless they've just met with you, they're probably not going to be thinking of you. And even if they have just met with you, if they've got someone that they see every few weeks, someone that's actually a friend to them, they're going to think of that person before you. And so it's not that you'll never get anything that way. It's that, um, you know, you're going to find yourself, you know, spreading yourself thin, trying to meet all these obligations. 
and not really building anything concrete. And I guess the other big thing I would say is in this, I think law is, you know, outdated in a sense in some of the approaches within it. You know, a lot of lawyers want to sit back and wait for the client to come to them and come into their office. But again, you run into the same thing. If I wait for someone to come into my office who's just been in a car accident, let's think about this. One, they're stressed out, they're hurting. Now I'm telling them, hey, on top of everything else you have going on, I need you to drive into the city to come see me. And, oh, how are you going to get here in the car you just wrecked? Oh, well, I guess you'll have to figure it out. When can you get here? Oh, probably about a week from now. Okay, I'll set you out for a week. What are the odds that person actually makes it to you? I mean, to me, as an attorney, you need to be client focused and trying to make it as easy as possible to do business with you. And so that means sometimes, hey, you've been in an accident. Let me come out your way to your house. Let me at least meet you at a restaurant or a coffee shop close by you. You know, it's about making things as easy as possible for the person to do business with you. I mean, if you think about it in terms of referral sources, you would never tell your referral source, hey, in order for you to do business with me, um, you're going to have to set a time to come to my office. Um, You're going to have to find your own way here. Um, once you get here, I won't, you know, provide anything for you except the, my time. I mean, you, you would be making it infinitely difficult. No, people will go out, meet a referral source, meet a doctor at lunch, meet them somewhere close to them, work around their schedule. But then when it comes to actual clients, the actual people that you're supposed to be representing, and frankly, the thing that you need for your business to be successful they'll want the client to do all the heavy lifting while they just sit at their office. And I think that's a outdated practice. And I think if you know, you're a younger attorney, you need to realize while you're sitting at your office waiting for them to come in, someone else is going to go meet them and then you don't have a client anymore. Right. Right. So your mainly focus um, of your law firm is uh, personal injury. How did you come to the conclusion that you wanted to be a personal injury attorney? Well, I think one of the coolest things about personal injury is that your interests and your client's interests are completely aligned. So I work on a contingency fee, which is basically meaning I get a percentage of what I get for them. So the better they do, the better I do. And the better I do, the better they do. If I tell them, hey, we should file a lawsuit, they know that it's because I think that we can get more money. Similarly, if I say, let's settle this case, they can know if I thought there was a bunch more money out there to go get, I wouldn't be telling them to settle the case. So I think you run into that. And then the other part of it that I like is that, you know, you're, you're working for individuals. One of the most common questions I get from clients, and this is despite all the advertising for lawyers out there on TV, on radio, is how much does it cost for your services? And the answer is always, I'm never going to send you a bill. Again, what I get is based off what I get for you. So my favorite joke to tell clients is, if I don't get you anything, you know, 35% or 33 and a third percent of zero is zero. But they don't know that. People think of lawyers still in the model of, I'm going to pay my lawyer $500 an hour or, you know, what, however much per hour and he's going to bill. And when you're a lawyer and you're billing, really, you have an incentive to make the case go as long as you can. 
Um, the client has an incentive to want the case to be over as quick as possible. So even though you're representing somebody, you've immediately put yourself at odds with them. So, I mean, with it being that most plaintiffs are people who are injured, people who really need help and people who frankly can't afford help. I'm in a position where I can help them. And I'm in a position where our interests put us on the same page and often against, you know, you know, technically the defendant is always another driver or it's the the business where they fell or it's the homeowner whose dog bit them. But really the the main person we're always working against is is some insurance company or in the event that someone's self-insured, you know, a large faceless corporation, you know, the Walmarts of the world or something. So you're kind of helping the little guy fight back against someone that under any other circumstances, they would have absolutely no recourse. So I think on one hand, I like being aligned. And on the other, I like the opportunity to help people who I think without the structure and without the way that, you know, plaintiff's law works would, you know, just be getting rolled over. Yeah, it's, that's it's huge for people nowadays, especially going against these giant corporations and insurance companies. It's it's a difficult task dealing with them. You know, it's funny that um, I think a lot of people associate uh, they don't really understand, like you said, the contingency fee. And I think they're more associating it with like a divorce attorney where you got to keep, you know, sending money in. And that's just not the case. So um, on the accidents that you um, uh, work, what's the most common accidents that you see? Well, I mean, the most common types of way that people get injured are car wrecks and falls. Um you know, th- there are other types, you know, there's, there's everything from, you know, someone in a store uh, spilling, you know, drain cleaner on themselves, or, you know, there's all these weird one-off things, but it's almost always, there was a car accident, which, I mean, you drive down the road, 10 minutes, you're going to see two cars pulled off to the side that hit each other. And so that makes sense. And then the other one is a fall, which, I mean, again, walk through any store and you're going to see several places where you're like, oh, they better put something out there and someone's going to fall, but they don't. And inevitably does someone does fall. I think those are the main types. You know, fortunately, most of these are injuries that people are, are able to recover from. But I think that feeds into a whole nother narrative that whole other narrative that people have bought into, which is, you know, if my arm hasn't fallen off or I don't have a broken bone, I don't have a claim. And that's not true. If you're hurting and you need to go to the doctor, you have a claim. It's it's crazy to me how often I'll talk to someone after a car accident and they'll say, oh yeah, I definitely want to go get my car checked out. And I'm like, well, what about your body? Well, I'm fine. Are you sore? Yeah. Well, then you're not fine. And so I think that, you know, those are the most common types, but it's always interesting to me, even though they're the most common types of accidents, I still think relatively few people actually file claims um, from them. You know, they fall at the store and, you know, they're embarrassed. And so they hop around in pain for the next several weeks, even though they're hurting because they're embarrassed they fell as opposed to thinking, well, why didn't Target put out a wet floor sign there? So I could have known, you know, to actually watch my step. Um, it, you know, it, it's interesting to me that, you know, you have these most common types of in- incidents, but even those are still pretty rare that people actually want to take some action. 
Right. So, um, gosh, I forget where I heard this, but I had heard that like a lot of car accidents, um, a lot of times you don't feel the pain right after even a week or two and the pain can come later. Is it, is there any truth to that or? Yeah. I had a, a family member and he got in a car accident and he let me know. And I said, Hey, why don't you go see a doctor? And he said, Oh no, I can't see a doctor. You know, I don't even hurt that bad. It's going to be fine. And I said, Hey, you're going to be in pain right now. You were just in a car accident. You have all that adrenaline pumping through your body and that's what's carrying you right now. But as soon as that wears off, all of a sudden you're going to feel all those aches and pains. I mean, you just hit, got hit by a vehicle that is very heavy and you know, the human body is not meant to take blows from cars. And so you have people who, like you said, think they're calling just because, you know, they want to get their car checked out. And it goes back into what I said, you need to get yourself checked out because all those aches and pains, you don't necessarily feel it up front. But one thing I will tell you is I have a lot of people who come to me and say, hey, it's been you know eight months and I'm still sore from this car accident. Can I get treatment? And at that point, I have to say no, because you know there's too big of a gap in treatment. Too many things could have happened. And so one, you want to make sure that you get treatment right away so you're not having to suffer through that. But the other side of it is if you wait too long, I mean, Gaps in treatment are a killer for personal injury cases, because if you're not at the doctor and you're not treating for your injuries, it brings up two questions. One, how hurt could you really be if you're not going to the doctor? And then two, you know, what else has happened? Were you playing basketball and fell down? And that's why you're sore now. The longer that you're away from a doctor, the more those questions are able to be brought up. So what what do you think is, uh, would be the max time that you should go um, without seeing a doctor? Like two, three weeks, four weeks? Like when is it too late to file? Like post-accident? Yes. Uh, okay. So I have kind of an ideal rule that I like to follow that's open to a little bit of flexibility. I mean, generally speaking, the number one rule is go as soon as you can. Um, if you get into an ER, I would say you probably have, you know, closer to a seven to to 14 day window to get into your first set of treatments. If you don't go to an ER, I think you need to probably be in at least within a week. But what I'll say is that can be flexible. Um, that's the ideal range. I think if you don't want to come up with any issues with gaps in treatment, but if someone comes to me and says, I was in an accident three, four weeks ago. I'm still in pain. We can work with that sometimes. I think at that one month mark is where it starts to get real dicey. Um, and it may well get dicey if you have a 30-day gap to your first treatment, but it's probably still worth trying. But you know, if you're 90 days out from treatment, it's going to be real hard. I mean, if, if you have a broken bone that you just never went and got diagnosed, potentially that could be something where we can reevaluate, but I think usually within 14 days, if you want to avoid any major issues, I think at 30 days, you're, you're really starting to push it. 
and you're getting to the point where if you don't go within the next, you know, day or so, there could be nothing. And I think beyond that 30 day mark, unless there's some severe injury that we're going to be able to trace back, um, with, with some confidence, it, it gets a lot harder to make anything out of it. Oh, I see. Um, so with your practice, you're pretty much, you're running the whole, the, the law side and the business side. Um, that process of the business itself of running it, what do you feel like you're doing well with it? Uh, that's making it run really well. Cause you, more than likely on your side, you probably really love the law side, but you have a business side here of your law firm as well. What do you feel like you you like about that side? And what do you feel like you're doing really well with that side? I think the thing I do better than some is to actually, you know, build a relationship with people. And when they send me someone, make it as easy for them to get business over to me as possible. I you know, I try to call right away so that we can avoid these situations where, and I've had this too, where I've referred someone out and then I get a call from them a week later saying, Hey, this, this lawyer never called me. And now on top of, you know, this, me not being able to get this client to that lawyer again, it's also made me look bad because now if the next lawyer does the same thing, is the client even going to come back to me and ask, if I'm working with this client on a current case and I send them to someone else for another thing, you know, does this affect our working relationship? So it's about treating the people that come to you through someone else well and letting, you know, reaching out to them, being in contact um, and making it as easy as possible for people to work with you. And I think we do a pretty good job of that on that on the side. The other thing is in, in law, when you um, get cases from other people and they've helped you work on them, uh, you know, you want to make sure that if they're helping you with the case, that you're actually, um, you know, making sure that they are, are made whole for the time that they've invested into it as well. Um, I've seen a decent amount of things where another lawyer will put in time helping one lawyer and then get absolutely nothing out of it. And you know, everyone's happy to answer questions and stuff, but if you're requiring a significant investment of time and resources from another attorney, you need to think of them as your co-counsel. And I think that gets, you know, lost in the weeds sometimes for other attorneys, you know, the, the check comes in for the case and they don't think who helped me with this. Right. Uh, you're almost, you're not really in a referral you really need to be in like a team member, a partnership when you're, when you're in that type of networking with clients. That right. about right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think that again, everyone that is sent to you, you reflect not just on your own law firm, but on the law firm that sent them. And so you need to make it as easy as possible for that firm to do business with you. And you need to you know, represent that law firm as best as you can. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, it, if, if your people are getting sent to you and they're not being taken care of, those are going to dry up. Every time someone complains about you, that doesn't reflect positively on you. And it's not to say that, you know, if one lawyer sends a client to another lawyer that, and they hear a bad thing that they'll never do it again, but if they send two or three people to a lawyer and none of them get a call back, 
I mean, at best, they're going to think, well, this guy doesn't need any more business, so I'm not going to think of him going forward. So it's about making sure you treat the people that you work with well and making sure that the people they send to you, you also treat well and not just being mindful of the law offices of, you know, Tyler Whittem, but being mindful of everyone that we work with and making sure that we're being good not just to the clients they send us, but to those people as well. And, you know, not making them regret, you know, helping us out. Right, right. So Tyler, why don't you give us a little overview of your practice of uh, the areas that you work in? So like pretty much every personal injury attorney, a huge portion of my caseload is motor vehicle accidents. Those are the most streamlined, I'd say, area that I do just because, you have the claim, you get them into treatment, the insurance companies have whole departments set up specifically for it. Liability is typically easier to determine because if you're standing there and you get rear-ended in traffic, there's no arguing that you could have done anything to avoid the accident aside from uh, learning to teleport your car somewhere else. Versus falls, which is probably the second biggest area, is um, something where you were walking along, you fell in a gigantic pothole. Should the pothole have been there? Probably not. But the other side of it is, if you were looking down, you would have seen the pothole. Okay. So now it's your fault. Well, no, because nobody walks looking at the grounds. Otherwise you're going to walk into things. And so it's a balance and there's a lot more push back and forth with liability on ones like that. The other areas I'd say uh, dog bites, typically there's a strict liability law, meaning If my dog gets out and bites somebody, um, you know, it's on my dog. You know, there's not going to be much of a fight there in terms of liability. Those can be good cases, but the hard part of those is a lot of times it's hard to track down if the person has insurance. And there's a lot of people out there who don't have any type of insurance um, that would cover them if their dog got out and bit somebody. Um, I also do employment discrimination, which again, we, we kind of get more into the, the liability side of things there. You know, you'll have someone come in and say, you know, I was discriminated against and fired with when, and fired when I came back from uh, my maternity leave, because, you know, I needed time off to take care of the baby. I'm like, well, you can't do that. And then you get further into the case and you find out that prior to them going out on maternity leave, um, they had several other, uh, you know, disciplinary actions against them. And then a lot of those just ended up being, you know, he said, she said arguments, you know, between uh, the employer and the client, you know, the client will say, this supervisor said this, you know, absolutely abhorrent thing to me. And the supervisor's reaction is typically going to be, nah. And so then you're in a position where you have to make sure that your client is, you know, reliable and that your client is, you know, putting on their arguments in the way that work best for the case. You know, those ones can be trickier just because there's always accusations being loved back and forth. And then I'd say my most unique practice area is uh, long-term disability denials under ERISA. ERISA is a whole, uh, you know, foreign, you know, land to a lot of plaintiff's attorneys and they don't do a lot with it. Um, Namely, because it's a really unfavorable law for most people appealing a a benefit denial. There's no right to a jury trial. Um, 
for example, on a, a disability denial claim, the question before the court isn't, is this person disabled or are they not disabled? The question is, did the insurer abuse their discretion given to them by the policy and saying that this person wasn't disabled? Simply put, is there any way that, you know, based off the evidence, uh, they could have come to this decision in any type of reasonable way? And the answer is almost always yes, because you'll have a long-term disability carrier that will you know, pay a doctor to say the person isn't disabled. And so if they're entitled to believe their doctor, then yeah, a lot of times they can do that. And so it's a, it's a really tough area of law, but, you know, I've been able to have some successes and, you know, once you've, you know, gone to gone through a bunch of these and you've gone ahead and, you know, gotten some of these denials overturned and gotten them, you know, kicked back to where the court says, Hey, you need to go ahead and review these things that you completely failed to look at last time. Um, I think it makes it easier on you, but it's it's a very niche area. There's a lot of unique rules with anything regarding ERISA and the, the long-term disability denials under it. But it, it's something that I kind of, you know, walked into right out of law school um, and I learned how to do. And frankly, there's just not a ton of attorneys practicing in that area. So it's a really good supplement to have to, uh, you know, those standard car wrecks, falls, personal injury, because even though there's not a ton of people that are, you know, have their long-term disability benefits denied, there's not a lot of people to service them when that happens. And so, again, when you, you find a an attorney that is getting a lot of those cases sent to them, you want to talk to them and say, hey, can I help you, you know, pair up on these and let's see if we can actually help some of these people get out of it. Because the the thing about a long-term disability denial is if I'm not filing a lawsuit on it or I'm not appealing the case, those people were going to get absolutely zero. So a lot of times, you know, people are happy when you're able to get them a settlement for money they thought was, you know, long gone and never coming back. Wow. That is something I did not know. That's, that is a system that you really need a specialist to know all the rules and laws to work through it. It sounds like, well, Tyler, we're about ready to wrap up. How can, um, how can people find you? You got a website? I do. Um, it's just widomlawfirm.com. Um, you can look that up. My email is Tyler, T-Y-L-O-R at Um Phone number for the firm is 816-522-3399. I guess the thing I always tell people is one, I'm never going to charge you for any type of consultation. But the other thing is if you send someone to me or you call me yourself and you don't know if you have a case, I'll talk you through it. And if I can't find someone to help you out, or if I can't help you out myself, I'll find someone who does that area of law. Because at the end of the day, as an attorney, you know, you're not in it to, you know, make the absolute, you know, maximum amount of dollars and to heck with everything else. You're in it to try to help people out. So I think if you're getting a call from someone and you think this isn't my area, but, you know, boy, my friend, uh, so-and-so knows exactly what to do in this situation. You want to make those handoffs to make sure that people get taken care of. Awesome. Awesome, Tyler. Hey, we could do another one of these on ERISA. That's I'm really uh, interested about how that works, but I appreciate you being on today. 
uh, on Case Closed, the podcast on contingency fees. And uh, we'll do another one sometime. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Case Closed, the contingency fee podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and their insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Case Closed, the contingency fee podcast is led by industry experts who unlock insights from the nation's top contingency fee attorneys. Each week on the show, the guests share how they got started, secrets of their success, and what's working in today's marketplace. Guests on the Case Closed podcast include successful contingency fee attorneys that will share their secrets so you can close more cases. Tune in each week for a dynamic conversation about winning legal strategies that will grow your business. 